This message is brought to you by IOM America and the International Fellowship of Exchange Life. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I am your ministry host. We hope that the Lord blesses you today as you listen to our podcast. We want to welcome our online listeners to our message today. As most of you know, we actually are doing an every other week series on the book of Revelation. And then the off week, we're doing a series on our identity in Christ. And the reason why that we do that is because the book of Revelation is pretty intense. And if we spend the next year talking about all of the details of the book of Revelation, I know many of our Middle East listeners, they are excited. I get emails almost every week about how excited they are with this series because they are just grateful that someone is willing to talk about the problems in the world and how it's really affecting Christian worldview. Like the issue that we just discussed offline about Muslims versus Christians versus the new religion that is coming called Chrislam. That's not being discussed in America like it is in some of these Muslim bloc countries. So the book of Revelation is going to be a series that is going to be extremely practical. We're going to bring out details that are affecting us every day and tying them in to what the scriptures have to say. Today we're going to be focusing on the revelation or the revealing of the seven churches. And there's some very interesting points that come with that. For today, let's dive in here and take a look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And it tells us that only born-again believers, and someone please explain to me what a born-again believer is. Yes, it is a term used actually in the scriptures by Jesus Christ himself. Pharisees were freaking out a little bit and said, well, how in the world can we be born again again? Can we go back into our mother's womb? It is a very impossible principle and truth to embrace unless you are born again. If we're born again, where's our old birth? Where's, our, where's that old beat up tin can? as we talked about last week. One of the primary deceptions of the church today is people say, my past no longer matters. I can assure you that my past is just as important as my future in Christ. I can guarantee you. I need to know what my past is so I know what I'm redeemed from. Or the next time I sin, I'm going to think it's the first time I sin. Do you understand that? Christ said that I do not need to remember your sin. In fact, it says in, in Isaiah, it says, I wipe away your sins, your transgressions, and remember them no more. Why wouldn't he give that to us humans? I would think we're the ones that would need that. That we would need to be freed from our past in remembering it. We need memory of sin because the next time we would sin, we would think it was the first time we sinned. Your past is what locks your future 
in its place. Now when I am in Christ Jesus, I, ha I look up into the rearview mirror and I literally am able to look into the rearview mirror and see the past of Jesus Christ true for me today. If he was crucified, I was crucified. If he was buried, I was buried. If he was resurrected, I was resurrected. If he was seated at the right hand of God, I was seated at the right hand of God. His past is my past. Ignorant Christians try to erase their past. My past is crucial for my growth in Christ. For humility, for gentleness, for growth, for stability. I need to know what I have been redeemed from in order to stay away from it. It's a fact. As, until this beat up tin can, this, this corrupt body of mine is staying in the grave and I get a brand new body, I need a direct connection to my past. Someone tell me, when you get to heaven, are you going to remember your past? Or are you going to forget everything from the moment you die physically? Or are you going to forget everything up to your death? The only reason why that somebody's sin story arouses interest in you is because you have sin in you. That's it. If there's no sin in you, you can hear a sinful story and it will not arouse you. There's nothing in you for it to arouse. That's why you will be a part of judgment. You will assist in the judgment process of hearing millions of sins being revealed before people. For a thousand years you're going to hear it. And you will not be aroused by any of their sin. Because there's no longer sin inside your mortal body. Because you have a brand new body. When you leave today and you see one of those billboards or you hear one of those dirty stories or you hear one of those sinful acts and there's temptation starting to happen to you, it's because there's sin inside your mortal body. It's knocking on the door of the sin inside your mortal body. Why do you die daily? Why do you wrinkle up? Why are you literally dying as you're sitting here today is because of sin inside every cell of your body. Sin is like a magnetic force. It attracts sinfulness on the outside to what is sin on the inside. But we have a choice on whether we are going to allow it to master us. And that's where the exchange life comes in. Now you need to understand this, listeners from, from, from afar or near. You need to understand there is no human on the face of the earth that can understand the book of Revelation unless you're born again. Impossible. The reason why Satan, who is the most powerful force of sin that there is, can literally read the book of Revelation line for line in its original text and still not understand it is because he's dead. 
There's no Holy Spirit regenerating the truth in his being. Every unsaved person, I don't care how good they are at the original text, there's no way they can understand the book of Revelation. I don't care how smart you are or how many degrees you have, you are ignorant and you are what the Bible would classify as stupid. Stupid is not a nasty swear word. Stupid is simply this. It is a word that is used in Isaiah. Isaiah used it to describe the shepherds who thought they knew the truth, but they did not embrace the power of it. That's all that stupidity is, is embracing knowledge without its power. That's stupidity. So when you think about that, that every person that reads this book is literally tampering with knowledge without the power of God unless they are born again. Unless they have the Holy Spirit living and breathing inside of them. There is a list of four positions of power that he has given each of us as believers and we're going to take a look at those throughout this entire series. But... For every believer, we have been washed as white as snow through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's kind of unique to think that something red will make us white. But it's true. The shed blood of Jesus Christ literally redeems, purifies, and makes us whole. And due to this purification, we have been made by God through Christ to live out these new positions. In God's eyes, there is no longer a separation of formal ministry from laity, for we are all priests. American and Western civilization is guilty of a huge sin. Get saved and go to school. Get saved and get educated. Get saved and go get a degree. Get saved and be more acceptable to the world. Do you realize that in this movement that is happening in America today, that certified, trained, degreed pastors is not on the increase, it's on the decrease, according to Barnes' survey. 62, I believe it was, percent of the pastors, pastoring churches in America no longer have degrees in theology. There's a movement taking place amongst people who want to minister the gospel to others is that the schools, the higher uh, leveled education, these master's degrees you get in theology, these doctorates you get, in theology or ministry or whatever is actually dumbing you down. It is not increasing your ability to reach the people, it's decreasing your ability. The best time to get a hold of a believer is after they catch the truth. That's when you begin to service them and train them and disciple them and mold them so that they have an effect without thinking I have to get a degree to help someone. We go from paupers to priests, 
from, from depraved humans to the bride of Christ within a split second of the twinkle of our husband's eye. No education, only transformation. Now if you want to get a little education on top of that attitude, great. But we go from nothingness to being literally the children of the living God and being given all the four power positions that Revelation is going to reveal to us. I would prefer to work with an uneducated person any day of the week. What was that one thing that they said about John and Peter? You must have... You untrained and educated men. They must have been with Jesus. You see, Paul was the most educated, degreed man in the world during that time. He was a chief priest. You don't go any higher. He had to stay under a discipler for 12 years for God to dumb him down. 12 years to dumb him down to where he would only say for I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified this is the smartest man in the world and that's the process God had to take him through now this is a real question for you Bible readers give me one story in the Bible where Christ saved someone Paul, Peter whatever vessel you want to pick and then God said through the Holy Scriptures go to school just one there isn't not one so if, if we were to cooperate with the enemy wouldn't that be the arena that should get birth through Rome Pergamum, one of the seven churches. You're going to discover here real soon that Pergamum was the first university in the entire world outside of the School of Alexander. But the School of Alexander was not a university. The, the University of Pergamum was a university. It also happens to be a place that Jesus himself referred to as DK, what's it called? The throne of Satan. It also happens to be, I have a picture of it. A friend of mine went and visited Turkey and he took a picture of himself in front of this symbol. It's carved into a rock that supposedly was behind this throne. And the symbol that is carved into the rock is the medical symbol. Moses' staff with the two feral snakes wrapped around it pointed at the Moses' staff saying, we're in control. That's where the medical symbol came from, which happened to be the place of healing, which is what Pergamum means. Now these are tiny little details we're going to bring out that might shake your foundation a little bit, but I'm telling you, they are there and they're given to us by God. You can get a copy of this by just going online and downloading this yourself, but this is a quick chart of where we're going with the book of Revelation. We have Babylon, 
and we have the different phases that we have had to go through to set us up for this seven-year reign of the Antichrist where each of the passages in the book of Revelation fall under and as you can tell everything starts to kick in as soon as the Antichrist starts his seven-year reign. There's a little bit being revealed to us all the way up through Revelation 8 about the first three and a half years being peace, peace, peace and then something very interesting happens on the second three and a half years and all these scriptures of the seven bowls and the harlot of Babylon the time of the beast the, the, uh, the judgment starting to, to uh, prepare itself and the flight of the woman all these scriptures are applying to the second half of the seven year reign this seven year reign of the Antichrist becomes the most significant seven years for humans in the entire existence of earth. The majority of Revelation is written about these seven years. That tells me that all of church history, all of just political history in general, or world history in general, is to set up for this seven years. All of it. So this three and a half years of peace and safety is fake, 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 fake. It's all going to be about world government and world unity and nonprofits working together and, 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 mushy, 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 peace, 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 unity, 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 unity. Religions blending and having partnerships like never before. America joined a movement that was started in Europe called Hate Crimes. It's been a part of Europe for 20-some years already. America signed on to it after our present president signed on to it his second week in his first term. He signed the bill of hate crime. In this bill of the hate crime, if you insult another ministry and their work, you can be arrested presently in America. I've been threatened with it by a Christian professor, actually. That's what this is about. You don't pick on anyone or their work or you can be arrested in other words it's it's all good it's all peaceful it's all safety the second three and a half years is quite different it's so intense God brings the two witnesses the two prophets back because there were two that left and as you probably already know this doctrine every human has to die including Jesus there's two that left that didn't die they have to come back and their bodies have to lay dead in the street for four days not three days because Jewish Orthodox Jews have a belief that the spirit does not actually leave the human body until after three days we have that in our funerals to this 
very hour. Three days. That's why they're in the street, Revelation says, for four days. Then they come back to life. See? Numbers are very, very important to God. But this is such a serious time, these two prophets have to come back and do their final witnessing. During that time, there's 144,000 Jews that are reached for Christ Jesus. They're converted for Christ Jesus. And they are used in this final three and a half years to accomplish Christ's work. Now let's take a look at these details. Verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and in every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, meaning the enemy. All the tribes on the earth will mourn over him, and every single eye is going to be able to look up and see the coming of our husband. Not just us. And it's going to freak them out. You think the rapture is going to flip these people out? I can promise you this day, the rapture is not going to flip those people out. It'll all be explained in such a way that it'll be a little blip in their world and they're going to go on. Why do, how do I know that? Because there's nothing stated in the scriptures that it's anything more than a blip. You see, we are so caught up in sorcery with, from Star Wars to, to video games of murdering people on videos to whatever. We don't know what's real and what's false anymore. We can create virtual reality and most kids today think it might be real or maybe it's not. Can you imagine moving technology into warp speed, moving so quickly that these average young minds get caught up in it and they do not know the difference between reality and a lie. They don't know. That's where we're going to be with this generation. It'll just be a blip. Won't be a blip for us. We will be taken up into the bosom of our husband. And that's the most striking thing about the book of Revelation is is you, you keep saying to yourself, don't they ever get it? I mean, after all of the, the pure water turns to blood and, and the pestilence, you, you keep wanting to say, don't they get it? No, they don't get it because they're not able to see truth unless they're born again. You get it because the Spirit makes it evident to you. They will not get it ever. All the way to Gog and Magog and that big battle. You would think, after all this history, they'd be able to get it. They don't get it. They stab and fight and war to the very last drop of blood. They don't get it. I get that in discipling people. Some people I just want to shake and go, don't you get it? After a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years of discipling them? No, they don't. Unless the Holy Spirit brings it to 
truth, they're not going to get it. It's not a Steve Finney technique. It's not your idea of transformation. It is the Spirit's timing for transformation. The second coming of our Lord is a critical part of our belief system. And the Hebrew reason for rapture is for the groom to come and, and do what most husbands do. They protect their wives instead of rape them, which is where the term rapture comes from, ripping away. So see, husbands normally are supposed to be protecting their wives. Well, Hebrew law requires that women are not to see their husbands angry. They can't even see it. So you see what's happening here is Jesus is coming in and he is scooping up his bride. He's putting his bride in a very safe place and then he's going to come back and he is going to destroy every demon, every human that ever insulted his wife. And what do we do mostly in the Western civilization, it's even a growing movement throughout the entire world, is that we spend the majority of our lives insulting our wives. Not honoring them, not cherishing them, but insulting them, destroying them. We're training our little girls up, which is our topic next week during, during uh, Father's Day. But we're training our little girls up to be men, masculine, as a story that was just shared this morning. The whole quality of the Bride of Christ is completely reduced almost to nothingness today. Not to Christ, I can assure you. No matter what your attitude is about women and the Bride of Christ, it is not the attitude of Christ. He will preserve her, protect her, nurture her, remove her gently. And then when he comes back, it'll be a drawn sword, fire in his eyes, full-on warfare. You will see colors come out of your Christ that you did not read about in the Bible. Men should have always first coming and second coming to their temperament. The first coming of Jesus Christ was peace. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to, to make things miserable. He came to draw men unto himself. The second coming is to push men away from himself. Do you understand that? The first coming is to draw. The second coming is to push him away. By the time he comes on second coming, it is finished. He's given all the warnings. He has spent 7,000 years giving us graceful little reminders that he's coming and what was going to happen. And all of those people who have turned a deaf ear to him, when he comes out of those clouds and comes down, I can assure you it'll be a Christ the emergent church is not prepared for. It won't be about mushiness. It won't be about peace, peace, peace. It's going to be about rightly dividing the goats from the sheep. We are to embrace John as just another believer. 
Yes, John was a little bit special because he was the beloved of Jesus. But he was just a believer. So we have the tendency to put Christians up on these little pedestals. The truth being said, every one of us are co-heirs of the grace of God. We are equal as bridal members, just like John. This was his selected ministry. Now what we are about to read in his selected ministry is rather significant. He was taken by Nero, which is translated out as 666, and put on this island. They just expected him to, to die. So John was caught up, first of all, on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. And then he was put on this island to be banished, to basically dry up and blow away, which is not exactly how it went. And then number three, he lived and wrote this book under the terrible persecution of these two primary leaders, Nero and, and uh how do you pronounce that? Demission? Both were ruthless Christian haters. And this is what these seven churches were under at the present time. And there was a movement that was taking place where there was no time to send a new convert off to the school of Alexander. There was no time to take a new convert, send him to Pergamum to, to the medical school. There was no time to... It was just they got converted and they were spreading the gospel. And these, these leaders were like, this has got to stop. And John must be... He, he must be, he must be at, at the root of this. So what do they do? Is They banish him to this island... And even to this day, if you look at pictures online of this island, it's still a pretty deserted island. But back then, I doubt there was anything there. No condos, no little marinas, you know, no fancy nothing. Hoping this guy would die. And what happens? God takes the entire creation from in the beginning, the Alpha, to the end, Omega, and he pulls it all together in this one simple writing project. On an island that was supposed to kill him. God clearly used this banishing as a sabbatical for you, not for John. For you. So why is the book of Revelation the least read book in the entire Bible? Well, to that I say, duh. Absolutely duh. If he's going to take a writing of everything from Alpha to Omega and put it together in one simple book, I would think that would be the book, if we were to support the enemy's work, would be the least read book in the Bible.
In fact, there was wars and rumors of wars for many, many generations, whether the book of Revelation should even be in the Bible. Number five, the golden lampstands are symbolic of the seven churches. Number six, Jesus is in, is in his full color and his girding. So if you read the scripture here with Revelation 12 through uh, chapter 1, 12 through 20, is you're going to find a very quick snapshot, almost a photo image being put into our mind of Jesus Christ in his full color. Pure white hair. When you have white hair, you are going from ignorance to wisdom. That's why there's so much written in Proverbs about honoring the gray-haired generation. Jesus has absolutely pure white hair. There's not one hair on his head from his old life. Not one hair from the wisdom of man. Pure wisdom of God. And supposedly the more white hair we get, the closer you are to embracing true and pure wisdom of God. I wish that was the case in all cases, but it is not. But that's the principle. And he's got fire in his eyes. He's got his gold sash. His feet are bronze, which are very symbolic. He is in full color. These lampstands that are surrounding him are these seven churches. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about each one of these churches. Number seven, his voice is like translated in Hebrew, the voice of many women. If you actually read it in English, it says, like strong waters. And remember the definition of woman in Hebrew? is strong water. So it is literally being explained to us that Jesus' voice is like thousands of women talking at one time. It's an overpowering sound. That's how Jesus' voice is being defined here strong water. When he speaks, nothing can get in the way of it. Number eight, his face is like the radiant sun. The sun actually translating out there is Shekinah, Shiki. It is, it is like the face of God. God's face is so brilliant that as he looks upon his son, he became brilliant. Remember Moses, <coughs> as he was coming down from the mountain? What was his face like? He had this Shekinah glory on his face. Shekinah glory is like throwing jello on someone's face. It sticks, stays on you. But in Moses' case, remember it would wear off? The only way to keep this Shekinah glory is to stay before the throne of God, to stay before the face of God, to look into the face of God, basically. Well, Jesus is literally taking the full radiance of his Father 
And that is what John is seeing on his face. Nothing you see in and of Jesus Christ is his own. You understand that? It's of his Father. He is a mirror. He is a receptacle. He is a post of life, a corner post that is to be showing the presence of God. And John is seeing this for the first time. So John reacts to Christ by acting like a dead man. I mean, he sees all that, what we just described, which is difficult to describe, falls at Jesus' feet and acts dead. Then he starts freaking out and becoming afraid, so Jesus simply takes his right hand and puts it on his head, and that touch of Jesus removed the fear. Well, he couldn't write unless the fear was gone. So the first doctrine out of Jesus' mouth is, I hold the keys of, of Hades. Someone tell me the difference between Hades and hell. Both are used in Revelation. But there's only keys talked about Hades. What's that? Okay. The keys to hell is a key. The keys to Hades is like this room and every person that dies that does not accept Jesus Christ and have a born again experience that Jesus referred to gets put inside this room. The doors are locked on all sides. Jesus holds these keys and they have to stay in this Hades until judgment is complete. Till the last human soul and demonic being is judged. The last one leaving that table, something very significant happens. It isn't all over yet. There's another battle. Satan's released from his chains, and there is a final war, war beyond all wars. There's so much anger and hatred because of judgment that this war has got blood is how deep is it? Huh? Horse up to the bridle which is supposedly supposed to be 12 feet of blood and how wide is this river? Two miles and how long is this river? 222 miles blood. There's so much anger because of people being judged. Rightly judged. We're going to have to talk about that battle. We're going to have to talk about the battle between. There's two big battles. And we have to clearly understand these two battles because the whole world is preparing for it. Hatred demands war. You can never turn hatred into peace. Never. Can't be done. Then the next thing, which is John's first mandate, is pick up a pen 
and write this down. Whatever you're about to see, write it down. Now see, this is the same routine we saw in the garden. God creates Adam outside of the garden, not in the garden, outside the garden, which is probably right around Iran. Iran, if you divide it almost down the middle, is where you're going to see the parameter of the garden. So if he was created outside the garden, it was on one of those edges, but most likely to the east. And he was created, and then he was put into the garden to work. This is before God gave him a spouse. Work. The same thing is going on here. Jesus is revealing his mission. I have the keys to Hades. I could have thought of at least a hundred other things that he could have said. Hi, John, how you doing? I'm glad you're here. Pretty cool, huh? No, I have the keys of Hades. Why? Because that's the number one issue. If you are so lukewarm that you have lost your compassion and your heart of lost people, who are you? I mean, who are you? There are people locked up in Hades right now that are going to be tossed into this battle that are going to be a part of a, a horrible scene and then after that they're going to be tossed into singular hell forever. The whole life you have should be about those keys. No, we make it about our careers. We make it about where we live. We make it about how much we make. We make it about how many degrees we get. We make it about all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, I have the keys to Hades. Number two, John. Pick up the pen and we're going to work. Because it's all about these keys. That's it. The whole rest of the story is literally unfolded before John's very eyes. He sees the past, the present, and the future all at one time. Shame on those Christians who think your past is gone. Shame on those Christians who think the past has no effect. Shame on those Christians who, who constantly try to ignore their past because that doesn't work in eternal matters. Past, present, and future. Man has a past, present, and future. When you step these two together into the spirit world like John experienced, you get to see the fullness of the life of Christ. My past is critical. Christ's past is critical. My present is critical. Christ's present is critical. My future is critical. Christ's future is critical.
separate them not. The only reason why people like to ignore their past is they're embarrassed. They don't want to speak it out in testimony. They don't want it to be a part of their lives. You ever notice some people just don't talk about their testimony? You don't know where they came from? You don't know what their struggles are? It's because they're trying to ignore their past. That's your story. The last I read, this had an old testimonies and it has new testimonies, not just new testimonies. It's like trying to read the Greek without the Hebrew. Shame on us for even trying. We need both. God's language and man's language. Greek is man's language. Hebrew is God's language. Remember on that timeline, the Greek period was so critical for church history? Greek is man's language. Hebrew is God's language. You need them both. Concluding. The seven angels in Jesus' hands at the scriptures reference that we read earlier there's an angel, very, very powerful angels. One assigned to each church. You put that angel between the church and the enemy, there is going to be intense protection. They will do their job. Just seven, not 7,000 per church, one. They are literally, as Jesus himself described, they are in his hand. They do what he says. Everything we're about to read in the future with this lesson about what Jesus says about each church, does Jesus have specific rebukes with each church? And encouragements? Yes, he does. We have to piece those down because they're in the world today. Laodicean is the emergent church today. It's Christlam. It will be the Christian Muslim movement worldwide. It's there. We have to talk about it. So when you see it arriving, when you read it in the papers, when you see the Southern Baptist monthly newsletter, which is where I got it, where it says... Southern Baptist mainstreams Islam. You'll know what they're talking about and why they're trying to do it. Very, very important. The radiant sun, I already talked about. That's the Shekinah glory of God. And then the seven lampstands are actually the seven churches. Now that's our foundation for Two weeks, actually it's three weeks from today, where we start breaking down the seven churches. I'm so excited about this. We are, if you remember, every other Thursday on our weekly emails, we are sending out these articles, and then I teach about them. And when the comments that I get in, I try to get in two weeks ahead of time and then I can actually integrate them into the morning message. 
so that when the podcast goes out there and we post the articles, it's a real good sandwich for these believers to be listening and reading. We want to thank you for listening in on our podcast today. This message comes to you by way of a podcast feed from Heartland Family Fellowship, a family-integrated church, which is an outreach of IOM America, right here in Sterling, Kansas. For more information about our church or international ministry, log on to www.iomamerica.org. And if you would like to connect to our fellowship, log on to www.heartlandfellowships.org. It's our prayer that the mind of Christ in you draws you into a deeper walk with Him.